what breaks my heart, Richard, are the young veterinarians, they're five years out and they go, Dr. Ward, what the heck, man? How did, how did you do this? And you're like, Ugh, this could be a problem. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Health Careers with Dr. Martin, a podcast show that pulls back the curtain on what a career in health and wellness is really like. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Martin. Hey everybody, welcome back. Thanks for joining me. In today's episode, we're going to talk with a guest who is an internationally recognized, award-winning veterinarian. And he is gifted in so many ways. Not only has he become a stellar veterinarian and serviced thousands of patients and pets, but he's also helped the families of those pets as well. And we're going to see how impactful he has been. Not only that, he has also written several books. He's gone and lectured at multiple, at, at most veterinary schools. And he's also founded several companies, all uh, catering and all focused on trying to help pets, trying to help animals. And you can tell he has a wealth of experience and perspective that can help you as a student if you're thinking about being a veterinarian. And so we're going to talk with Dr. Ernie Ward, a veterinarian based out of North Carolina. And I've been very fortunate to have him on this episode, and I'm so glad that he was able to share the wealth of his experiences and perspective that I think you're going to really gain from. Um, Not only how to get into veterinary school, what to think about, how to take uh, advantage of opportunities as they arise, but also understand what are some of the drawbacks of being a veterinarian and really take that to heart. And I think his stories that you're going to hear his perspective that you're going to hear in this episode is really going to help guide that decision making in your own life. So again, if you enjoy this episode, if you like what you're hearing, you like this podcast, please give me a five-star rating. Leave a nice comment if you can uh, in whatever podcast that you're uh, listening to. Oh, or just check out the, my website, hcwithdrmarn.com. That's healthcareerswithdrmarn.com. And check out the blog post there of all my guests and also some of the, the links where you can find out more about them. So without further ado, let's jump into this. Today, I am blessed to have a wonderful guest here, uh, Dr. Ernie Ward in uh, North Carolina. Yeah, North That's Carolina. That's right. Well, welcome, Ernie. Thanks for coming in and joining me. Yeah, about as far away from Honolulu as you can imagine. <laughs> but, that's right. Uh, we well, still share yes. a love of the water, you know? Yes, I got to tell you, that's something that I think we connected on when we first talked. We just enjoyed being in the water. I, I enjoy sailing now and stand-up uh, surfing, stand-up paddleboard, sub-surfing. And, of course, you're doing it very actively. I mean, you're near the beach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I live, I, I'm fortunate I live on a barrier island off the coast of North Carolina. Uh, it's, it's great uh, about 99.9% of the time. And then when hurricanes roll up, it oh, gets quite yeah. frightening, but uh, yeah, that's, that's the <laughs> run for the had. hills. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> um, okay. Ernie, so let's jump into this. Please provide a quick bio of yourself so people understand a little bit about who you are. Yeah, I'm Dr. Ernie Ward. I'm a veterinarian, and I went to the University of Georgia College of Veterinary Medicine. I graduated way back in 1992. Whoa. Uh, I quickly went into uh, <laughs> private practice, and over the years, I built up several practices, uh, you know, 
eventually leading to uh, lots of television and books and things like that. I was the resident house vet, as we used to refer to myself on the Rachel Ray show from nice. 2007 to 2014 or something. So mm-hmm. got to got to play in that world for a while, right, writing books. Uh, I really focus primarily clinically now on pet obesity and weight-related disorders. So I do a lot with, with pets that have chronic conditions. I also have started many companies, uh, wide-ranging from plant-based pet food companies to advanced diagnostic laboratories. You know, I I think somebody recently referred to me as an impact entrepreneur, and I kind of like that. So I try to find areas that I think I can make impact that benefit the world. And my world happens to be around pets and pet parents. As a veterinarian, let's do some quick hit questions about you as a veterinarian actively. What does a veterinarian actually do, especially for yourself? Like, what do you focus on as a veterinarian clinically? Yeah, we focus on every species that you don't focus on. <laughs> okay, so the only species that veterinarians don't treat or diagnose or make yeah. recommendations on are humans. And so it gets really interesting. So, you know, my typical day tip is really revolves around dogs and cats, you know, but also small mammals. So whether it's ferrets, mm. hamsters, rabbits, you know, uh, the occasional bird, the reptiles, the snakes, you know, wow. it's a really fascinating uh, profession just based on the diversity of, of cases that you can see. Now, obviously, you know, I tend to focus on dogs and cats. Yeah. Uh, that's where my love and, and domain expertise lies. But, uh, you know, you can do anything you want. Uh, you know, and, and interestingly, Richard, I grew up uh, in a rural farmland. All of my family still continues to farm to this day. Uh, so even working with food production animals is an aspect that veterinarians may um, may do. I'm a vegan, so I don't typically go to that area. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, that is a, a really a much need, needed uh, profession. Ernie, how does someone become a veterinarian? What are the usual steps educational-wise? Yeah, education for veterinarians is very similar to human doctors. Uh, we typically have four years of an undergraduate degree, primarily in the STEM science. Biology, chemistry tend mm-hmm. to be the favor. There are pre-vet, pre-med, pre-dental types of tracks. But, you know, for me, I was a biology, microbiology to be specific. Uh, then you go four years of veterinary school, at which time, you know, when you graduate, you can go straight into clinical practice as a general practitioner, or you can take residencies, you know, internships, become a specialist, and so forth. Most specialties in veterinary medicine require an additional four years for a total of 12 years, uh, similar to to many of the human uh, disciplines. But yeah. most veterinarians, you know, the vast majority are sort of like me. We go four years, we go four years, and we become a general practitioner. So four years of college, four years of graduate school, four years of this uh, residency. Mm-hmm. And then you said there's additional years after that if you want to specialize? No, no, sorry. So, you don't have to? Yeah, no. So, uh, and, and a di- different than your specialty, we only do four years of vet school and then you can go out. To become a specialist, you would take an additional uh, four years. So that would be a 12-year college tracker, so to speak. What percentage of the time do people do that extra four years? Yeah, you know, it's growing in popularity. And I think that's uh, a trend that you guys witnessed on the human medical side, you know, 25, 30 years ago. So now more and more people are beginning to specialize. Uh, but currently, you know, this is still, you know, less than 20% of the profession is specialist. Got it. Got it. Or actually, so the majority of people, four years of college, four years of graduate school, start working. Done. Right. Got it. Okay. 
And, and interestingly, Richard, because the economics of veterinary medicine aren't always favorable, I mean, most vets mm. are heavily indebted. I mean, average student debt yeah. load is approaching $200,000. And then commiserate salaries are less than 100000 You know, I mean, students are starting to get paid more now, of course. But, you know, we're starting to see some universities reduce the undergrad requirements. So there are a few universities that will allow you to get in after two years or three years even of undergraduate uh, study, as long as you take certain core requirements, make certain grades, make certain tests, you know, scores and so forth. So there are other ways to shorten that. And again, you know, I'm in favor of this and I've sat on many committees at a national level over the years because, again, the economic returns just aren't uh, aren't that great. So you're telling me you may not need to graduate from college to get into a veterinary graduate school? In certain, yes, there are certain situations. Yeah, there are several veterinary schools that are starting to work with undergraduate programs to like fast track you into it. it. And again, you know, I um, I'm torn on this. The economic argument makes a lot of sense, right? Because I can shorten your your cost of tuition, so that's great. On the other hand, I am a firm believer in having a very you know liberal arts background because I think that curiosity, creativity lead to innovation, and that certainly served me very well. I mean, you know, I've I've told so many students over the years that some of the most impactful courses I ever took had nothing to do with science or medicine; they were philosophy, right? I mean, these were a lot of of literature courses, creative writing courses, and honestly, had I not had that background and foundation, I don't think I would be where I am today. So, you know, I'm kind of torn. I get the economic argument, but on the other hand, I'm like, how do we create curious, creative individuals? Right, right. Best part of your career, Ernie, when you look at Without a doubt, you know, it is dealing with the team. So, you know, building different clinics, you know, and, and again, you know, I'm, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, I, I enjoy building clinics and teams, but over the years, just working with veterinary technicians, which are our equivalent of your nurses, uh, you know, and just watching them blossom and grow and mature, like, you know, honestly, it's that type of impact. Now, on the other hand, of course, I could, we could both rattle off hundreds of cases that deeply affected us, you know, that we yeah. felt you know, profound pride and and doing. And of course, there are lots of heartbreak stories that we could share as well. Uh, You know, so the patient element is one aspect of practice. But for me, the other thing is just working with teams, you know, like-minded colleagues, associate veterinarians that I employed, you know, colleagues, you know, in consulting or in speaking, you know, veterinary technicians. I think, you know, my my goal has always been to, you know, as my father, my late father taught me, leave it better than you found it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that the, the lives that we touch and can we improve upon them? Those are the things that make them, that are most meaningful to me. On the flip side, what are some of the least favorite parts or a least favorite part of the career? Yeah, w- without a doubt, it's just dealing with uh, difficult pet parents. I mean, I'm just going to put it out there. You know, I mean, many times they're incredibly demanding, unrealistically so. You know, many times these uh, involve demanding that they be seen at times that are, are, are just impractical for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, many times, you know, there's financial pressures that are mounted upon us by a pet parent and, you know, that are, again, unrealistic, unsustainable. And, uh, you know, that constant emotional assault, Richard, that is mm-hmm. the thing that I think 
If veterinarians uh, in particular aren't able to fortify themselves, to nurture them, this self-care wellness movement, you know, I mean, people like you and me early in our career recognized it, but nobody was talking about it back then. Nobody was talking about this stuff back in the early 90s. (laughs) So, so, you know, it's like, yeah, suck it up. That's wellness, right? (laughs) You know, quit whining. You got this far, you keep going. Exactly. So, but it really is important because if you don't develop these habits to fortify your soul, so to speak, you will become a hollowed out version of yourself. And this is Mm. leading to burn out, this right. compassion fatigue, you know, of course, depression and, and, and self-harming, all those issues that we see in our profession that you see in yours as well. So, you know, I think that it's, if when people say, what's the worst part of your job? I think many people just do the knee jerk. Oh, it's euthanasia. It's really, I mean, that's mm-hmm. tough. That can be tough, but the reality is it's the pressure that pet parents just constantly cr- try to crush us with. And so, you know, as many, you know, and I like to tell vets too, when, when I give lectures, it's like the problem with, with this is that of the hundred clients that you may see, pet parents that you may see, there may be one who's really, you know, just aggressive, intimidating, threatening, and yes. all that stuff. And that one can actually negate the 99 who love you. And I think it's really constant psychological battle. You've got to be refortifying yourself, putting up, you know, that strength, you know, that armor to put on every day to, to confront it. So that's, it's a real, like, you know, realistic uh, issue. And you, know, you hate it. If you're a high school student listening today, I think the main thing I would encourage you to do is to go and work at a clinic for a long time. I started working in veterinary clinics from age 15 on. It's all I know. So I was well aware of these pressures when I decided to finally, you know, I'm I'm going to be a veterinarian. And so I think it's really important that you not be shocked and surprised because Richard, I'm seeing an entire generation of young veterinarians graduate and they are, they are overwhelmed. <laughs> They're kind of going, wait, what? People don't love me all the time. People can say mean and hateful things to me and they post nasty reviews yeah. on Google. It's yeah. like, yeah, <laughs> that's part of the job. So I would encourage you to really get that real world experience uh, as, as much of it as you can. So Ernie, what is your typical day like when you're doing clinical work? Yeah, during clinical work, you know, most uh, most days start uh, early. And so we're talking, you know, I'll usually try to be in the clinic by 8 a.m., a little mm-hmm. earlier, depending on the caseload or, or what maybe is the first or second case of the day. Uh, and and typically it's going to end around six o'clock at night, you know. And so these are long days. Uh, you know, we usually don't get lunches, not a formal lunch. You know, I do try to take time away uh, to go yeah. for a walk or something like that. But, you know, these are these are those quick little hits. And, and I think that's that's a challenge also for people to to even remove themselves at lunch you know so if i can go out for a 15 minute walk to clear my head get some fresh breath you know refuel and then it's back at it so these are long days uh typically our appointments are 30 minutes so with each patient you know or our pet parent we're seeing about 30 minutes some can take a little less some can take a little longer uh as you imagine and uh so you're seeing them just back to back to back to back um you know it's not unusual to see 18 to 24 patients in a day so the caseload is is quick fire um, most of them are pretty straightforward as you would imagine um, just yeah. like in your pa- you know your patients there's a, most of them kind of follow the rules and there's like a set of, of diagnostic criteria symptomology and then you know you get yeah. a diagnosis and and so forth um, and some of them are just vaccines or whatever so it's a wide variety I think what what happens in vet medicine is you you want to be really able to 
be flexible because you might be dealing with a puppy who's just getting a simple set of immunizations and the very next case could be terminal cancer. And then followed up by that is a behavior case, which is psychology, right? And then, oh, and by the way, now we've got a renal failure cat. So, you know, it's like constantly spinning up. Now, I thrive in that environment. Like I like just quick shifts and like, you know, really challenging myself. And, and, you know, I think if you're, if you're sort of didactically inclined, you know, you really like the facts and the figures and you don't mind reading a lot of research, you know, veterinary medicine can be very, very um, rewarding. At the same time, each one of those 18, 20, 24 pets that you see with all these variety of conditions are attached to a person. And so that's managing different behaviors, as we talked about, different personalities. And so sometimes you have to go in and be very soothing and calming and, and, and very you know, simplistic uh, terminology. And then the next one, you know, is is actually an MD like you. And so suddenly I have to amp up my language. Uh, so, you know, all that variety, I think it's incredibly engaging, but I also think it can be a challenge. And, and this is why I continue to say, get as much experience in the real world as possible before you commit to this profession, because it might not be your gig. You know, it right. might, you might not really like that quick shift, you know, go forward, reverse, yes. forward, reverse, you know, take a hard left. Whoa, now, right. Um, I enjoy that, but it doesn't mean it's for everybody. It also requires a lot of energy and effort. Uh, but, you know, so you're seeing these rapid fire patients, you know, uh, surgeries, uh, typically in my case, we do them during lunch. <laughs> so really, you know, so we can kind of complain about that. But, you know, I try to take about 15 minutes to, to clear my head as they're kind of getting our patients lined up. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, then I'll come back in, uh, who, whichever vet tech is on at the time will give me sort of the debrief, you know, we'll review, uh, our pre-anesthetic blood tests and, you know, all the, the, you know, whatever physical exam parameters we're evaluating for that particular patient. And then, you know, we kind of start rapid fire getting the surgeries. And so it's not uncommon for me to do two or three surgeries a a day, Monday through Friday. And then, you know, kind of um, that, you know, Saturdays and Sundays, we don't do any, obviously. Well, so that's typical though. Typical vet will have clinic as well as surgical procedures. Right. Right. Ernie, what's some misconceptions people have of veterinarians? That it's all puppies and puppy kisses all day long. Mm. That people just, you know, shower you with affection. And, you know, I think people don't fully appreciate the emotional toll that it takes. And, you know, we focus a lot on like euthanasia. And and I think that, you know, while that's that's a completely separate category, right? I mean, and, and that's that's emotionally taxing. Don't get me wrong. But it's a minority of your practice. It is, it's not the thing that really eats away at you. What eats away at you just literally are those day-to-day grinds, those yeah. those little insults and innuendos that clients give you, you know, uh, the 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 sneer of, you know, you care more about money than my pet, you know, and stuff. <laughs> and, and it can just chip, chip, chip away. Yeah. And I think that uh, you know that's that's the thing that people, you know, they they think it's all just puppies, you know, and kittens and just kiss, kiss, kiss. And, and the reality is a lot harder. The, the, so I'll be honest. So Richard, for me, I, I, when I got into high school, I'd always wanted, I'd always known I would be a vet right from when I was yeah. a little kid. Yeah. But, um, my parents were really <laughs> not super enthusiastic about that mm. because they knew, you know, they knew the vets that I worked with in town and yeah, they were kind of, you know, they weren't, Super they weren't thrilled wealthy. about your, your career choice. <laughs> you know? and, and here, are, you know, and again, you've got to be super sharp. You know, I'm, I'm a good student. And so they're like, you really need to, to go into to medicine. And I, I was that close to becoming a pediatrician because the only other thing I could envision myself doing is to work with children. I have mm. that 
that is sort of my, you know, energy, right? You know, I like working with little things yeah. that, that can't help themselves. And mm-hmm. I, I'm very passionate about, you know, a lot of childhood issues, including childhood obesity that I do a lot of work with, uh, you know, with the One Health platform. But but regardless, you know, so my uh, senior year of high school, I start to play around. Do I really, you know, is vet? Maybe my parents are right. Maybe, you know, you do all this work and you don't get any rewards from it. So I went to, um, I, I had the good good fortune of, of shadowing a pediatrician for a couple of months. Like when you were in high school? Yeah, when I was a senior in high school. And so what happened was um, I had a a lovely, lovely pediatrician pull me aside and she was like, you know, Ernie, the worst part of this job is having to tell, you know, a parent that their child has a terminal condition, something you can't fix. And it was that moment I realized I can do this with a dog or a cat or a horse or a cow or whatever. I don't know that I can do this for a human, you know? And uh, yeah. so that was kind of, that was the defining moment. Literally, I never went back <laughs> because I said, wow. you know, I like, I like, it's like the puppy dog and the kittens, right? I was like, I love the kids. They're coming in, you know, we give them immunizations, we give them a lollipop, mom and dad love us, right? Uh, but I hadn't quite made that connection of sometimes our small town pediatricians have to sit down and say, your child has a congenital heart, heart defect. I mean, whatever, right? Cancer. Yeah. Whatever, you, and, and I, that was, that was the point for me. I said, I, I don't think I can do this. So how'd you get into veterinary medicine? I mean, you said you were in clinic at age 15. What no, were no, you? I, right. I had only, that's all I wanted to do. My parents, honestly, the reason I got hooked up, it was through a church contact. Uh. My parents are like, Ernie, do you really want to do this vet stuff? Right. You know, cause they don't make so much money. And you know, I mean, that was, it was just so to, it was to appease them. I, I, I shadowed two human doctors. The first was a nephrologist. No way. <laughs> I don't <laughs> I think that would be to, for you. I went down to a dialysis clinic and my oh. mind goes, no, never, no way. I'm not going, this is not my gig at all. And so then my parents were like, you've all, you're always so good with children. So went to the mm-hmm. pediatrician and, you know, honestly, again, you know, for the first like month or so, it was all immunizations and, 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 you know, lollipops. And I was like, yeah. this is pretty cool. You know, I, I kind of get this, you know, and they seem to have pretty good hours and all that stuff, uh, you know? And so, um, but then I, I was really fortunate that she sat me down yeah. and said, let me tell you, so how did you get even interested in veterinary medicine at all, being a veterinarian? Yeah, it, it's a, so, so first and foremost, all of my family comes from farming backgrounds. So right. my parents were the only two that actually went off to college. So everybody else is still back in rural Alabama and Georgia. And so, um, so they were escaping the farm effectively. Um, and so, but I, I still grew up with that, right? You know, because you go summers with your cousins, you know, you're always at your grandparents. Yeah. I mean, so it's always farm, 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 farm. And so that's a little bit in my probably DNA. Um, but when I was, um, you're growing up surrounded by animals. We grew up in, in rural, you know, Southwest Georgia. And so with acreage, you know, we had five acres, you know, we had a little, a few row crops, you know, we had lots of animals, you know, we had, uh, we had, uh, ducks, we had rabbits, we had chickens, a whole lot of chickens. We had a lot of dogs and cats, you know, so that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm surrounded by it, but when I was seven years old and you guys can look this up online, I mean, this has been published in a wide variety of, of areas, interviews and, and our, our articles I've written. But when I was seven years old, uh, my first two dogs that were my own, Taco and Missy, they were accused of killing chickens at a neighboring farm. Uh, and Taco probably was, uh, you know, be honest with you back then, you know, you don't have fences. It's, I mean, this is the country country. Yeah, like, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Most of America doesn't ca- quite relate always. Yeah. So this was country country. And one night, uh, you know, uh, unmistakable sound woke me up. Um, but uh, 12 gauge shotgun, you know, buckshot. And, uh, 
the unmistakable cry of, of taco, you know, mm. and you, you know that, right? That's yeah, just yeah, something, yeah. you know, jolts you out of bed, run outside, taco, I still to this day, I don't know how he made it back home. Uh, but, uh, you know, half his side was blown out and literally I'm holding, you know, him as he dies in my arms, you know, the, the gravel is just digging into my knees. Uh, I kind of, that was the moment I was like, you know, this is what I got to do. I got to figure out how to save animals. And, and it was, that was the track and I never veered from it. You know, obviously, you know, as a senior in high school, you know, your parents are like, you're about to go to college, you know, yeah, <laughs> you what sure are you going to do? You really yeah. want to do this. Um, but, uh, and honestly, after those experiences, as a senior, kind of, you know, only working in vets. That's all I've ever known. You know, my parents like, you really need to see the other side of medicine before you commit fully. You appease them. And, you know, there was just never any waiver. You know, I, I don't know anything else. Like, you know, anything outside of, of animals is kind of foreign to me. Are there a type of student that you think best flourish in this career? Yes. And these are people that are curious. And um, so I think you have to start with a passion. Like it, you know, it's not a lukewarm attraction to animals. Like it's not something that you go, Oh, I think that's interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, it's something that you have to do. So I think the best veterinarians, it's something that you are literally called to do. And, and really most of the, you know, there's a, a lots of controversy when I say things like this, but you know, it's like a lot of times that, that, that hits you when you're young. Now I had a traumatic event that sort of catalyzed yep. and crystallized that and printed something on your brain. It, yeah. it did. It, it definitely, and it's traumatic and it's unhealthy. You know, as, as I write about in several articles, you know, this, that wasn't a healthy genesis, but you know, it was mine and that's what I got. Uh, but, you know, I think that, that when you're a kid and you really latch onto that, because we know that the, uh, many, many children, I want to be a fireman. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a veterinarian, right? We yeah. know the kind of list, but most abandon that very quickly. But the ones that it really attaches to, they then commit themselves to academic rigor, right? They always stay super engaged, you know, honestly, you know, what was I doing before 15? Well, it was illegal for me to work in a vet hospital, you know, in Georgia at the time before I was age 15, but I was still volunteering on the weekend, bathing dogs up there, you know, starting around age 10, 11. Uh, but you know, that was not a job. You couldn't, you couldn't do that. I'm probably going to get somebody in trouble if they ever look back at the books, but, um, <laughs> but you know, so it's what, what you do. So you find those opportunities, right? And those are the people that you know them when you walk in the door and haven't been involved with admissions at different levels at university vet schools, you know, you, we, those are the students we recognize right off the bat. So they've got the passion, they've got the experience, which is something that really distinguishes you these days because the students that come in and just do the minimum requirements of like the 40 hours and which is what most vet schools, like 40 hours of volunteer work and you're, you're going to be a vet. Okay. But it might not be exactly what you think it is. So I really want to see those those students who go out there and get that real world experience somehow. Yeah. And then then the 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 third and final thing I think is really having a, a much more holistic approach to the world. You know, I mean, really not just being so focused. And you can be if you want to be world class specialist. That's a separate entity. But you know, right, right. the students that I'm looking for that do the best are the ones that remain intellectually curious multidisciplinary. So they don't, you know, again, outside of the hyper-specialization, you know, they really like, they like a lot of things. And I think that, you know, if you have a love of art and literature and, you know, 
politics, you know, contemporary events, you know, if you love philosophy, I mean, if you like those something else, that's also going to lead you to a more satisfying career because Richard, you and I know the people that make their whole life only about their career are the ones who typically burn out, you know? And, mm. and so, you know, I've been doing this a long time. I mean, I graduated in 92, whatever, you know, that's coming up on 30 years. And so, um, you know, you want to be able to maintain that enthusiasm throughout your career. So the best students, I mean, obviously you got to have the academics. This is not easy to get in, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, and then you've really got to, I think, get the experience to make sure that this is something you want to commit the rest of your life to. Because what breaks my heart, Richard, are the young veterinarians, they're five years out and they go, Dr. Ward, what the heck, mm-hmm. man? How did, how did you do this? And you're mm-hmm. like, this could be a problem. <laughs> Great advice, Ernie. What do you think the future is like as a veterinarian? Yeah, I think it's great. Uh, You know, the pandemic sort of accelerated a trend of bringing more and more pets into our homes. And I think what happened when we were in lockdown was that people looked around and go, okay, I like my partner, but oh my gosh, my cat, (laughs) she's amazing, you know? (laughs) And so uh, I think we've got this renewed sort of relationship with with the animals that that we surround ourselves with. So we've seen, you know, an increase, uh, especially among uh, millennials and older Gen Zs as far as pet ownership. So that just accelerated that trend. I also think that the bond is shifting. So, you know, whereas mm-hmm. we used to say like the baby boomers, you know, they they brought the, the pets into the backyards. The Gen Xers, we brought them into our bedrooms, right? Well, now, as we're saying, you know, the Gen Z, they bring them into the boardroom. And what I mean when I say that is they're bringing them into the workplace, into their yeah. life everywhere. Like, you know, it's like now everywhere. And so I think that's Airplanes, where- for yeah, example, too. Uh, exactly. Three years ago, I wrote a piece. Um, they, they asked me about trends. And so one of the trends identified was the uh, everywhere pets trend. And so that's what we're starting to see. And so when you have more access to pets at a restaurant and, and again, I, you know, outdoor seating, I mean, you know, yeah, I don't yeah, want to yeah, get into yeah. the arguments on, but you know, when you, when you can take them on a plane, a train, you know, when it's, when Uber is like, fine, bring your dog with us. Right. You know, th- those are the things that make having a pet more, I think, uh, pragmatic, realistic, you know, it's and you enjoyable. And so that's what we're going to see. So I'm incredibly optimistic about the profession. I also think mm-hmm. that the demands for expertise is, is just going to continue to go upward. So if you're now looking today to replicate my career path, you know, uh, you may find yourself uh, at a bit of a crossroads saying, okay, this guy did a lot of of nutrition. Well, when I graduated, there really weren't nutrition specialists, right? So I kind of had to do this together. There's a whole generation of us, you know, where there was like, I mean, for many years, there were like 20 board certified veterinary nutritionists in in the world. You're like, you know, so (laughs) we had to kind of do it on our own. Same thing with behavior and other, other issues. So I think you may find yourself needing to specialize moving forward. And again, I only see this as a positive, but, you know, just be aware that I think this model is slowly shifting. Getting back to that thing we said at the beginning where some of these vet schools are starting to reduce the undergrad requirements. This also may be a a pathway for for more specialists, right? Because suddenly now, if, if it's if you're accelerating the timeline to your degree, well, then that means, well, wait, I'm really only adding a couple more years to get a specialty. So, hey, that's probably a good investment as well. But let's change the gears a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about my, do my rapid fire questions. Ready? Ready. All right. High school, awesome or terrible? Awesome and terrible. Right, <laughs> <laughs> you for a lot of people. Um, was there a chore you really hated doing as a child? Uh, yeah, uh, picking up the chicken yard. 
Yeah, that's chicken disgusting. yard. Yeah, so you have chicken coops, and so chickens poop everywhere, and so periodically you have to go and get that. Now you can use that as it's fantastic fertilizer, but it is a someone has to get that fertilizer. It's not a pleasant <laughs> chore. <laughs> Favorite junk food. Oh gosh, you know I'm not a huge junk food person, but you have chocolate, something chocolate. Place you most want to travel to? Uh, Indonesia, surfing in mm. Indonesia. That is. Oh, that'd be nice. We're working. We're we're working toward that. Oh, that'd be nice. How many hours of sleep do you need? Oh, eight to nine, without eight a doubt. Eight to nine. All right. Yeah. What do you most admire about your spouse? Oh gosh, I mean, you know, look, uh, the women are the the stronger sex by yeah, every. That's true. But you know, it's 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 patience. You know, like my wife, uh, I do tend to be a lot more, you know, sort of bullheaded and just we we will solve this, you know. Mm. And she is able to take that one second pause and say, let's reflect for a second before we take that next step. And so I, I, I've definitely learned a lot of patience from her over the years. Nice. But, you know, I mean, you know, if you're lucky enough to have uh, a strong partner in your life, I mean, you know, number one, they've got to have complementary traits. And so, you know, yin to yang actually is a thing. And so uh, everything that I do on that side of the the energy equation, she complements in the opposite. And so those are the best kind. And you know, awesome. we, we uh, met in 1986 and we've been inseparable since. Finally, what is the greatest career mistake you've made? Honestly, for me as an entrepreneur, it's when I've gotten into situations with partners, co-founders that we were kind of only half aligned with. And you kind of think, well, that's enough. <laughs> you know, we're aligned on like the major stuff. And I would say if you're choosing, uh, you know, a life partner, if you're choosing a business partner, if you're looking for an employer, you really, it's got to line up all the way through. Uh, because what will happen is at some level, when challenges come, when yeah. friction and tension comes, when things aren't going well, those fracture lines, those disparate areas now become augmented, highlighted, amplified. And suddenly now it's those little things that you kind of were not in sync with that become big, big things. And so the things you were in sync with are less meaningful. So I would say the biggest mistakes I've made is when I've partnered with people that I didn't, we weren't fully locked in, mm. you know, and, and and you always have this belief, well, I'll fix that. You know, they'll <laughs> we'll come fix around. fix it when or, it comes around, if it yeah, does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, that it's not that big of a difference anyway. And, and it can be, you know, and there's lots of opportunities in life for you to work and negotiate and collaborate. But, you know, when it comes to like actually being co-founders and visionaries, that's when you really want to be in lockstep. And because, you know, you got to you got to know that they got your back and you got to have their back. Yeah. Ernie, this is wonderful. Thank you so much for answering these rapid fire questions. And of course, all the whole interview itself, just a wealth of information. Thank you so much. Where can people learn more about you and find out what you're doing? Yeah, uh, Dr. Ernie Ward, anywhere. <laughs> if you just type in D-R-E-R-N-I-E, Ward, W-A-R-D. Uh, you can also go to DrErnieWard.com, but I'm on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, TikTok. I mean, all that. I don't YouTube. do a lot of TikTok, so don't go there. YouTube, yes. <laughs> if you just type in Dr. Ernie Ward, uh, you're going to run into me somewhere. And, you know, and and it's, um, I, I would just sort of imparting, you know, if you're a young student, a young person, and you're thinking about this as a career, like, you yeah. know, maybe you're on the fence like I was, you know, your senior year, and you're going... Should I be a vet or a doctor? You know, I would just the biggest bit of advice I can give you is to really get out there and get real world experience. Mm -hmm. And I know students come to me all the time, Richard, probably like they do you. And they're like, I can't. Nobody will take me. And it's like, 
where there is a will, there's a way you can definitely, yeah. you know, shadow, you can show up, you can, you know, you may not get paid for it. I didn't get paid for quite some time, but you know, the reality is just seeing it firsthand, you know, as much as you can, you can't see everything, but what you can see, let it shape and guide you. Because again, where, where I think most people make a mistake, whether it's human medicine, dentistry, whether it's optometry, whether it's veterinary, whatever, yeah. is that they don't fully understand the expectations. And then when there's a misalignment and their expectations and reality, frustration and burnout ensue. Yeah, that's great. Uh, great advice. That investment of time is so essential. Ernie, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. I really appreciate you coming on to this episode. Thank you for coming. Uh, thanks for doing this. It's my honor and pleasure. All right, everybody. That's our show today. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about today's guests or other past guests, just check out my website, healthcareerswithdrmarn.com or hcwithdrmarn.com. Of course, if you like what you heard on this podcast, then please go to my website, add your name and email to my email list. That way you can get the latest announcements and news as they arise. You can also find me on Instagram at drrichardmarn. That's Dr. Richard Marn. Thank you so much for listening and catch you on the next episode.